Recognizing new life, whatever its form, is the principal mission of this vessel. If the possibility exists, no matter how slight, that these exocoms are life forms, then we must examine that possibility. Clearly, these are difficult issues to resolve. We have to proceed very carefully. What is this? The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen. Engage. Welcome to Vintage Picard, an engaging podcast about Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. Brought to you by two gentlemen who take Star Trek seriously. Ourselves, not so much. And uh, so, who might those gentlemen be? You might be wondering. Well, I, for my own part, I am Gary McComiskey, a longtime Star Trek fan, and my co-host on this trek. I am James Sajazi. How are you, James Sajazi? Doing pretty well, thank you. How about yourself? I am doing reasonably well, as well as can be expected under the circumstances one supposes, because obviously we are still in this uh, yeah. uh, this this mirror universe that we find <laughs> ourselves in, unfortunately, uh, for the foreseeable future. So we're just going to try and batten down the hatches and make the best of it. I mean, I've had the goatee for uh, many, many years, so I've been well ahead of the curve there. Indeed you have. That's right. It's one of your staples and signatures, too. This is what I've been waiting for, James. All these years have been building up to this. This moment. Oh, really? By the way, James, before I go any further, I just want to, uh, on behalf of myself and the listeners, your birthday was a few days ago in this drop, so uh, happy birthday, James. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And to everybody else who's had to celebrate a birthday under these conditions, happy birthday to you. And what I keep telling my friends and family who've had celebrations, celebrated birthdays through this uh, lockdown, that when it's all over, we'll all get together and have one huge party. That's a very adult bit of reasoning. So I hope it doesn't extend to your birthday. Fingers crossed. That will be in late August, just for frame of reference. (laughs) Not that I expect you to get me anything. Certainly not. I'm just, since you probably don't know when my birthday is, I didn't want you to be scratching your head of, like, what is he talking about? So that's, that's, that's just for you. Anyway... Hey, uh, one other thing I wanted to kind of address here at the top of the podcast. It's been something that's been gnawing at me a bit for the last two weeks. I feel like I may have uh, inadvertently plagiarized somebody and not given them the proper credit for it. Unacceptable. So I want to do that right here. In the previous episode of Vintage Picard, when we were doing our review of Measure of a Man, I had mentioned how Data read all those books about poker, which he said in the dialogue, and yet he did not at any point read about the concept of bluffing. I believe that that was not new information that born out of my brain. I'm pretty sure I first read that critique in The Nitpicker's Guide for Next Generation Trekkers by Phil Farrand. What is that object? Uh, That was a a book. It was actually a series of books, but this one in particular, a book of nitpicks, basically. He, He took the entire 
series. Well, the first book covers like the first, I want to say six seasons of Star Trek, the next generation. Cause that's when it was released. And then he wrote a, a part two, which recovers the first six seasons, then covers the second season and generations. He also wrote one for the original series and one for DS9, which I think covers the first five seasons of DS9, if I remember correctly. And basically, for every episode, he does a brief synopsis of the episode, much, much briefer than what we do here on this show. And then he he lists in under certain categories the things wrong with it, like continuity errors or plot holes or technical problems like things that conflict with previously established canon or I mean it sounds kind of mean-spirited but it, honestly it's all done in good fun by a a huge enormous fan and looking back on that now I think that may have influenced my take on doing this podcast uh my relationship with Star Trek Picard in particular given the way that uh, we tend to review those episodes obviously so I, I did not want it to seem like I was taking credit for someone else's work or intellectual property. So I just wanted to give credit to Phil Farron. I He hasn't written one of those books in many, many, many years. I think he had like, um, there was some legal issue that he had trouble resolving. And then after that, just couldn't be bothered. That may be anecdotal. But that's the story I remember hearing as to why he stopped writing the books, which is a shame because they were very well written and I enjoyed them thoroughly. But uh, I don't know what he's up to these days, but Phil Farrand, that that was the author in question. So if you have a chance and if you think you might be interested in that, if you enjoyed this show, you would probably be interested in those books. You know, go go find them. Like, I'm sure there are digital editions somewhere that you can check out. And uh, it's good stuff. Computer. Uh, in the next generation, the computer didn't really give like an acknowledged tone. So when you say computer, I'm just <laughs> waiting for your next command. I was just going to say, just look up Phil Fern, but <laughs> I kind of choked. So it would seem. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. But uh, so this is normally the portion of the podcast where we cover the Star Trek news. And I have to report that, unfortunately, this week, there really isn't any Star Trek news to report. So you will have to go, sadly, newsless. It has been posited that this podcast is entirely newsless. I'm inclined to agree. So I, uh, oh, hey, before we jump into the meat of this episode, I, I know I've done a few of those already, but this is the last one, I promise. James, I, I just want to ask this to you on behalf of the listener what am i wearing right now on my my upper body my torso what what is girding my torso at this moment you're wearing a very very cool looking shirt that uh, has the vintage picard logo on it and mm -hmm. it is the silhouette of elnor elnor mm -hmm. with quotes of his and words associated with the character that he is and mm -hmm. it looks so much cooler in person and i definitely want to get one for myself and i think the listener out there once you see this shirt you're gonna want one too i got i forget which one i got the premium tea or the comfort tea or what but it's it's very comfortable so if nothing else i i recommend whatever it is i got which i guess doesn't really help you no not exactly but you know Suit to taste, I suppose. Well, that's the other thing, too. There's options, too. You could get t-shirts or mm -hmm. you could get a hoodie if you want, and there are different... You could get a poster. That's cool, too. 
But yeah, it, it's a, it's a very cool looking shirt, and if it's comfortable too, that's even better. It is, yes. It's it's very nice, and I know that we stand to benefit from your purchase of it. So our opinion is somewhat biased, but I tell you in as unbiased a manner as I am capable in this situation, it is really a genuinely nice shirt. I'm inclined to agree. So, uh, you know, consider getting that. And once again, if you are considering getting that shirt, you can find it at teespring.com slash choose hyphen to hyphen live. So there you go. Um, all right. So I guess I've wasted enough time unless there's something you'd like to waste some time with james all i've been doing is wasting time <laughs> you'd think right, i'd read no. a book or learn something new but no i wouldn't think that no I, i've known you for many years yeah <laughs> i'm sorry that that's insulting i didn't mean it to be i meant it to be a gentle barb but that actually came off as somewhat mean-spirited and you deserve better than that i apologize these attacks must end there's no baseball there's no hockey Picard's over, Star Trek Picard. So I'm just watching reruns and listening to podcasts and growing a beard. That's about it. I mean, you, first of all, it is widely held that Star Trek The Next Generation did not hit its stride until Commander Riker grew the beard. So, I mean, you're just carrying on a great tradition there. That's true. Secondly, you could get angry about Star Trek Discovery. That's true, too. And another thing, too, is, okay, I'll, I'll get the beard for Riker, but I also have the Picard hairdo as well, so there you go. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> the best of both worlds. Nice. <laughs> so there you go. Discussion is irrelevant. It all ties together. It all ties together. <laughs> It would be even more convenient if that's the episode that we were covering this week, but alas, it is not. <laughs> we'll get there, but we're not there yet. Because right now, we are in the thick of a different thematic arc. So James and I have kind of discussed what we want to do with this podcast for the next foreseeable future until we have more concrete current Star Trek stuff to cover. So we've decided we're going to take this in thematic arcs that pertain to Star Trek Picard in, in different ways. So last time on Vintage Picard, we covered the seminal Star Trek classic, The Measure of a Man. So this week, we are going to continue what I am going to call the artificial rights arc with Star Trek The Next Generation Season 6, Episode 9, The Quality of Life. Now, James, before we jump into the actual review of the episode, I just want to put this out there. I think this is a somewhat divisive episode in the Star Trek fandom. I don't understand. It's one of those episodes that it seems like you either love or hate, like Darmok. So, uh, <laughs> let's say. So, this has long been one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. Not at the tippy top, but maybe like second tier favorite episodes. But I know a lot of people do not feel that way, <laughs> to say the least. So, you know, listener, your mileage may vary. But uh, I, I just want you to know that going in, uh, you know, full disclosure. That's something we're a big fan of here on this podcast. And so we open said divisive episode with something that we actually discussed at length in our previous episode. It is it is well established at this point in season six. It is the poker game. That's fun. And this particular poker game sees a group consisting of Lieutenant Worf. 
one Lieutenant Commander Jordy Laforge, <laughs> Dr. Beverly Crusher, and Commander William Thomas Riker. Uh, it's, a, it's a small group for this particular game. We don't even get a data in there. Like, it's, I don't know. I guess, uh, I, I, I was going to say, I don't, you know, I was going to make up some, like, silly reason for why they decided to make it a small, intimate group. But I know why, because of the dialogue. The reason that they have it with those three guys is because those are the three gentlemen who have beards at this point. Because, in fact, in this episode, this is one of the few episodes in Star Trek The Next Generation where Geordi LaForge actually has a beard. He is sporting the beard. They remark on the beard. The beard is actually a plot point to open this episode. From a production standpoint, the reason that LeVar Burton had the beard for this episode is because he grew it for his wedding. So he, uh, he wanted to have that for that. But they let him keep it. And so I believe he had it for the episode previous and will have it again for the episode after. So, you know, cool. But uh, for, for this instance in time, Jordy LaForge has a beard, as do Worf and Commander Riker. And in fact, it becomes a topic of discussion. Dr. Crusher, we would come to find out, does not entirely trust a man with a beard. Explain. She finds it suspicious. She thinks he's hiding something. And the other three are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not hot. I could, I could quit anytime I want. I could lose this beard in a hot second. It's, it's just, I'm just, I've just gotten used to it, says Commander Riker. For Mr. Worf, it is, of course, uh, viewed by the Klingons as a symbol of great strength. And uh, Jordy just likes it, I guess. I don't remember what his reason for having a beard was. He just, I don't know. He's trying it out. But uh, as it happens, they decide to make that part of the wager for the next hand of poker. And the bet is such that if Dr. Crusher wins, now they've already dealt the first round of cards, so they already have a sense of what they have, what their hands are going to be. So if Dr. Crusher wins this hand of poker, the other three will have to shave off their beards. It is not stated for how long, but, you know, they will have to shave off their beards. Now... We've already seen Commander Riker without a beard. Jordy will shave off the beard in short order as it is. And uh, did Worf have the beard in the first season? Yes, of course. I feel like he didn't, but I don't know. No, he, he did. I'm looking at some old pictures, and it's definitely the old forehead, and he has the that Fu Manchu-looking thing. And, all right, so I was wrong. Cool. And also, too, I'm going to assume that uh, from all the Klingons I know as the... Uh, how many Klingons do you know, James? They, do you summer on Kronos? Ridiculous. From all the Klingons that I know, I think they all, or at least the male Klingons, I think they all have some sort of facial hair, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. I don't remember details like that for some reason. I, You'd be amazed at the nonsense that I can recall and the importance, not that this is super important, but the, the stuff that I forget. Like, it's just, it boggles the mind. But we've spent way too much time on this topic. That's correct. Anyway, the bet is they shave off their beards if they lose. If one of them wins, then Dr. Crusher has to become a brunette, which is something that she tried once when she was 13 and hated. So, of course... You know, they're like, yes, those are definitely the stakes now. I think it would be only fair. So they, they, they start their first round of betting and things already start to get interesting. 
things look a little shaky for the gents. And then it is, of course, interrupted by a page from Captain Jean-Luc Picard calling all of them up to the bridge. And the reason that they have been so summoned, we will learn in a captain's log, a, a rare kind of delayed captain's log. Usually it opens the episode, but uh, so they have arrived at Tyrus 7A. And the reason for their visit is that they are there to evaluate a particle fountain, essentially a space station, not dissimilar to another space station in a different Star Trek series that would serve this function. It is a space station dedicated to mining. So fortunately, they are not using Bajoran slave labor on this one. I should hope not. They are using a brand new technology, the aforementioned particle fountain, which basically shoots a beam of particles, one assumes, and uses that to, I guess, elevate the ore and stuff up to this space station to be processed. It's it's a little unclear as to how exactly it works, but all we know, really know is that it's it's shooting a consistent beam of particles, one assumes, down to the planet's surface. It's, it's, it's really, the mining aspect is not all that important. It's just the excuse for them to be there and, and for them to have access to a facility that's not quite finished yet. So we find out that the person who runs this project, a Dr. Farallon, she is very much behind schedule. She's run into all kinds of problems and issues and, you know, it's not looking good for the evaluation, but she's hoping, she's hoping that uh, she can, you know, pick up the pace a little bit and, and, you know, maybe she's got this special thing that might be able to get her back on schedule. And it's pretty important that she does get back on schedule because the reason the Enterprise is there is that Starfleet is evaluating this particle fountain technology for potential use on another planet. And it's going to be Captain Picard's final report that will be essentially the determining factor as to whether or not they go with this. Yes, it certainly is. So just as the good doctor is about to show Jordy her brand new toy, something on the station goes boom <laughs> and they can't fix it right away because it's in a pretty inaccessible part of the facility. So Jordy's like, listen, we got to shut this thing down or we're going to have much bigger problems. This whole compartment's going to be flooded with radiation. So I got to pull the plug on this thing. And she's like, no, it took me forever to get to this point. And if you shut it down, it's going to take me another forever to get back to this point. You cannot do this to me. And he's like, listen, we can't get to the problem. Do you want to be irradiated? What would you have me do? And she's like, actually, I'm glad you asked. This is a perfect opportunity to show you my little mechanical doojammy that can, you know, fix any problem. It's this is like this is this is kind of the beta version of the magical MacGuffin. It's uh, I wonder, I wonder if the magical MacGuffin that we would eventually see in Star Trek Picard is in some way descended from this particular magical MacGuffin. It's a mystery. Ah, that is something I had not considered until just now. But, you know, I would not be surprised if it was or if it's not, it should be, frankly, because it uses similar technologies, seemingly. Uh, this is the Exocomp, which is a little squat. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's this little droid looking thing 
that is able to hover and uh, basically she programs it to do a thing and it flies down the conduit and it is able to repair the problem and thus they do not have to shut it down and lose months of work. How convenient. And so this miraculous little doojammy is uh, proven out to be quite the remarkable piece of technology indeed. So much so that Jordy wants to bring it back over to the Enterprise and show it off to everybody else. Hey, looky at this cool thing. So uh, they do, essentially. But not before they get a call from Mr. Data saying, is everything all right? How did you fix the problem? And Jordy's like, I honestly don't know. Into credits. And of course, Space the Final Frontier, you know, you know, you know how it goes. I know how it goes. We all know how it goes. It's a classic. We are aware of that. So uh, speaking of the credits, one thing that we learn, one thing that uh, is noteworthy about this particular episode is the direction. And James, I don't know if you picked up on this, but the thing about the direction of this episode, it's a freaks. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that. Thank you. Okay. And in all sure honesty, thing. too, um, I know when we were going over our notes before, I did not mention that while watching the episode, that's exactly what I thought of. Two things I thought of. One, when they opened up with the poker game, I thought of your great, interesting story that they were originally going to have Data swim in yep. uh, Measure of a Man. So I, I, mm-hmm. thought, I started laughing at myself, uh, laughing to myself at that. And then also, too, with the Exocomp, I was thinking, that's how you write a MacGuffin. Because it, yes. to me, it was believable. Kind of like with yeah. with fast forward to uh, Iron Man now with that, that, that mini nanotechnology where little mm-hmm. things that kind of little mechanical thingy majiggles just makes things yeah, yeah. out of manners exactly. mm-hmm. thank you so i was totally cool with that there could just makes the tool that it needs to fix it and knows how to fix it and there you go as opposed to just little um whole thing that looks like a kind of a pan flute thing or whatever and you just use your imagination and then it just magically fix things that just anyway it's just it's, it's good writing versus silly imagination yeah i mean it's we're jumping ahead slightly in the episode but yeah we would come to learn that the Exocomp is basically an update, a modernization of a piece of technology that already existed on this planet that people have been using that's essentially just like an advanced you know, tool that, that can reconfigure itself for whatever you program it to reconfigure itself for. So it makes sense to your point. It is, it is believable that it could evolve into this through, you know, iterations. And whereas, as you just mentioned, the magical MacGuffin from Star Trek Picard that we see on Capalius, it's just somebody like, oh, hey, here's your plot device that's going to be able to magically fix all of your problems. Have fun with that. Like, there's no, it's it's a bridge too far, you know. Both of it. This is getting us nowhere. But so, yeah, we learn that information about the exocomps when they beam over to show it off. And uh, we also find out that actually, as it happens, Data is something of a fan of Dr. Farallon's work, and she is a fan of him. So, you know, that it's kind of a mutual admiration society here. And there's a whole lot of technobabble uh, about how new and impressive these exocomps are. And, oh, it's got these 
pathways that's based on this and the blah, 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 blah. You, you know how techno babble works in Star Trek. Yes, of course. Micro replication system. Yeah, micro replication system. Thank you, James. Yes, it does have a micro replication system, which allows it to replicate whatever tool is needed for the job. You basically, you enter the job that you need done and it will kind of take it upon itself to figure out the most efficient way of doing that job, replicate the tool that it needs and go off and complete the task. It, seemingly it is a somewhat sophisticated AI, uh, which, you know, honestly, in Star Trek, AI kind of automatically equals life form almost across the board. So I don't know why this episode even kind of evolves the way it does but i'm getting ahead of myself so yeah the kind of the key takeaway from that scene is that the exocomps learn they don't just repeat tasks you know over and over again they are able to learn from their experiences and uh you know kind of adjust and modify the way they do things more efficiently based on that they are a learning ai not that those words are ever actually used um, so given the fact that these exocomps are seemingly proving their worth, Dr. Farallon goes to Captain Picard and she's like, hey, listen, I know you're supposed to submit this report to Starfleet today, but I think if we use these things that I've had forever and had access to for a really long time and apparently haven't been using to solve all the problems I'm having... If we use them to solve the problems, I think in a couple of days, we might actually get to a spot where you will have a favorable report that you can send back to Starfleet. What do you say? And Captain Picard's like, what do I say? I say, you've got yourself a deal. Let's not rush it, shall we? And so uh, that's, that, that, that's what they did. They're going to wait two more days. And so she's like, great. And to sweeten the deal, how about you throw in that Mr. Data that uh, has, you know, been hanging around and, and who I'm a fan of to help me out? You know, being a super fast, super strong android, he might be able to speed things up a little bit himself. And he's like, you want Mr. Data? You got Mr. Data. Is there anything else? So she beams back over to the station with Data, the particle fountain. And Data starts to put the exocomps through their paces. He's like, all right, I, I set them to 14 different tasks in the last hour, and they were able to accomplish them with flying colors, stuff that would have taken a team of two people nine hours or whatever to, to do. So I'd say, you know, this is, this is a pretty, pretty cool bit of kit that you have managed to gin up here. I like where this is going. This is a promising bit of business. Unfortunately, the universe loves irony. So just as Data is saying how awesome and, and, and great these things are, one of them returns without completing its task and shuts itself down. And Dr. Farallon's like, well, that's odd. Let me send it back in. It never, uh, I swear, this has never happened to me before. Uh, um, my exocop is always able to perform. I'm aware you've been under stress. Um, so, but, but she can't, she can't just, she can't get it up in there. This must stop. It has gone too far. And so, in fact, she keeps trying and eventually the control panel in her hand, like, gets an electric shock and she has to drop it and her and data are like well ain't that a thing 
but they do not have too much time to contemplate that because mere moments later, the conduit behind them explode. I would appreciate a more detailed explanation. It go boom, boom. Thank you. This is not a very well-constructed station. Like, I, I have to say, from what we, like... In the first couple of scenes, there have already been two catastrophic failures. If I was Captain Picard, I wouldn't need the extra two days. I'd be like, okay, maybe we revisit this down the line when it's not constantly breaking. You're saying I should just sit down, shut up, and wait. But so, rather than focusing on, wow, why did a conduit in the middle of the station blow out and start billowing steam and rocks... No, instead, they go back to the Enterprise and they're like, well, what has gone wrong with this exocomp? Hmm, this should be the definite mystery that we need to solve right now. This is the most important thing in this episode. Yes. So they go back to engineering, they start scanning the thing, and they discover that the control interface in the exocomp that allows it to take commands has burned out. And not only that, but it has also written itself some new circuit pathways. And Dr. Farallon's like, ah, uh, shoot. You know, this happens sometimes. They just start writing themselves new pathways and you just can't do a thing with them. And uh, so, yeah, they shut themselves down. And unfortunately, you have to do a factory reset to, to get any use out of them. So... I, I guess we're just going to have to erase it. And what a time, what a heck of a time for this to happen when we're in this time crunch and could really, oh, well, <sighs> I guess it's my lot in life to feel sorry for myself. And she just kind of walks off in a huff. And so then Data and Jordy are left to kind of muse. You know, it is awfully convenient that this thing malfunctioned in just that way at just the right time. You think there's any way it knew that that conduit was going to blow up? Nah. Oh, well. And then Jordy goes off to attend to something else. And Data kind of gets a look on his face, grabs the exocomp and steals it. <laughs> Essentially, he runs off with it. I, I half expected him to put it under his shirt and like, <laughs> this is foolish. But no, actually what he's doing is he's taking it back to his quarters and he does some, some tests on it there because he has diagnostic equipment in his quarters. I guess he doesn't need a bed. So he has that, you know, table that he uses. And so he has the computer running some tests and really strange thing. The exocomp has fixed itself. And even stranger, the exocomp is the one that broke itself in the first place. So the exocomp burned its own control circuitry out. And then when the danger was passed, it fixed itself. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm inclined to agree. So then we discover Dr. Farallon drowning her sorrows in 10 forward with, I guess, a cup of tea. I think she said, I guess she's taken a little break before she has to dive back into her work. So Jordy comes over to talk to her and he's like, I bet you were that girl who had to be better than all the other kids and go higher and farther and, and just keep, keep pushing to be the best. 
And she's like, yep, that was me. And he's like, yeah. And I bet you had to climb that one branch higher in the tree. And I bet you never fell. And she's like, no, I fell all the time. I dang near killed myself on a regular basis, but I don't give up. She's like, I'm going to complete this particle fountain by any means necessary. Dun, dun, dun. You always did have a flair for the dramatic. And so, uh, okay, we get it. You're determined. Elsewhere on the Starship Enterprise, Sick Bay, to be specific, Dr. Crusher and Mr. Warfer are there in those, uh, they call geese? Yes. The white workout garments that they use on, on uh, the Enterprise. And we are led to understand through dialogue that Worf and Dr. Crusher were sparring with Batleths, which... <sighs> as far as I can remember, is the first, last, and only time that Dr. Crusher has ever expressed any interest in weapons of any kind, let alone a Batleth. But uh, it seems like the, you know, Dr. Novice over here almost caught Worf uh, with a, a lucky shot. I have to assume it was a lucky shot because there's no way. There's, like, I'm not... She's a great doctor. She's very intelligent. There's no way she's going to be able to tag Worf with a bat left. But she's like healing up her arm. I guess she got cut because she made a mistake. And uh, so they're kind of sparring back and forth verbally a little bit. When in walks Mr. Data and he's like, hey, so quick question. I, I, I just I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Crusher, just had a question um, what is the definition of life? Now, sidebar, data has access to pretty much every database ever. So he should have like every recorded definition of life ever <laughs> that, that he can draw from. But I guess that doesn't, you know, involve Dr. Crusher in the episode. So we have to have him go to her for this. So what is life? She's like, oh, life. That's a great um well it's um it's complicated and she gives a whole bunch of like technical requirements for ways that you could possibly define life or or qualities that life could have the quality of life see they're very clever james yes it is true and she's like, you know, Wesley asked me this question when he was a, a kid and I couldn't answer him. And I thought I was pretty dumb. And then I realized that, you know, scientists and philosophers have been wrestling with that question for so many years. And uh, I felt a little less dumb. So, you know, I guess it's fine that I don't know because nobody does. And uh, so they have a little bit of a, a back and forth. Data wants to know why he's considered alive when some other things aren't. That, that technically, like, fire and uh, crystals. He wants to know why, why he's considered alive and they're not, since they can, like, reproduce and they, have, they consume material. And, like, they have other... Watch the episode. It, <laughs> uh, it, honestly, it's not worth talking about here. What is the purpose of this? But, so Data's left with kind of this metaphysical question. But he gets something, some kind of inspiration from this conversation. So it's not a complete waste. And in fact, the conclusion that he comes to, which he announces in dramatic fashion when he beams over to the particle fountain is that they must stop using the exocomps immediately because the exocomps are alive. It's an important consideration. Right into commercial. 
dramatic reveal into commercial or at least dramatic assertion. I guess it's not a reveal as yet, since it's only a, a hypothesis at this point. Why is this so important to you? So on the other side of said commercial, the gang is in the observation lounge. Everybody, I think it's the only time in the episode we see Troy. Yep. And uh, so Data's explaining why he thinks this. He's like, listen, the exocomp acted in self-preservation when it saw that the conduit was going to blow up. You know, it, it, it stopped you from being able to essentially kill it with a, a command and then it repaired itself. And I think it's, it's pretty obvious that this thing seems alive. And so you have to stop exploiting it. And then Dr. Farallon's like, you realize that's ridiculous. The exocomps are not alive. You are anthropomorphizing these things. It is pure coincidence that it malfunctioned at exactly the right time. These are tools that I built. They are not alive. Also, they're not alive. And now this is as good a time as any to kind of address this. One of the reasons why I thought it was a really good idea to cover this particular episode at this particular time is because I've always seen it as kind of a spiritual successor to the measure of a man, because I think it covers a lot of the same themes. And Dr. Farallon, in this instance in particular, seems to be playing the role of Bruce Maddox. I think you can agree. It would seem so. So yeah, uh, you know, we've heard the argument before since we covered it at such great length on our last episode. I'm not going to retread that, but it's basically the same argument. Yeah, just because it looks like something that might be alive and exhibits some of the characteristics of sentience doesn't mean that it actually is a viable life form and should be treated as such. It's, it's a thing that was built to serve us. So let's get to the servant. And uh, rather than putting the exocomp on trial, because we already did that one. So they're like, okay, there's a way to settle this out. Give me a theory. Anything. Let's test it. Let's put its life in jeopardy again and see if it tries to save itself again. And Captain Picard's like, hmm. Make it so. And so kind of surprisingly, it seems like they all immediately adjourn to a Jeffrey's tube to do this test. And so they've decided they're going to simulate a catastrophic failure they're going to send the exocomp into the Jeffries tube to fix a problem. And then they're going to a short while later simulate a catastrophic failure. And if the exocomp senses the failure and sees its life in danger, it will turn around and leave the Jeffries tube before it gets vaporized. So that's the basic gist of the test. That's an excellent idea. So they send it in. We see the exocomp start the repair. It like visibly hesitates and starts to go back. Then it turns back around and continues the repair. The clock runs out on the time until the supposed failure. The exocomp doesn't come back. It has failed the test. It is clearly not alive. It was a fluke. Sorry, Data. Let's get back to the exploitation. Toot to sweet. Quite right. So you should. And so, you know, Data is... is for a being with no emotion, he is a bit crestfallen. I have to say, Brent Spiner plays it very well. That was a remarkable performance. Of course, you know, <laughs> that's no news to anybody, really. Brent Spiner owned that role for how many years? So 
I guess, you know, giving him credit for, for playing data very well is, is, you know, like giving Star Trek credit for being a good show. And that's not necessary. Go on. Captain Picard is like, Hey, I, you know, I know this is maybe a disappointment, but I don't think this was a waste of time. I think this was a great, valuable exercise. We learned a lot here today. And Data's like, uh-huh. And and uh, so everybody leaves. He's just kind of left to his own devices. And then, uh, I don't know, we, we then come to find out, fast forward an undetermined amount of time later, Data's in the same spot, and he is running this test on the Exocomp again. We would come to find out he's run this test 34 times with the same result. And uh, he just can't understand it because he really thought there was something here. Dr. Crusher stops by to check in on him, and we come to find out that this was actually really important to Data. Why? Because he feels like he was all alone in the universe. I guess at this point in the series, we had... we. Hmm. I'm trying to remember whether at this point in the series we know what happened to Lore. I think at this point Lore is just out there in the ether somewhere. That's correct. Because uh, he escaped at the end of Brothers, and I don't think we've seen him since. No. So, yeah, Lore is out there. So Data technically is not unique and alone in the universe, but that doesn't actually fit into the storyline there. And uh, I guess it, you know, to say, you know... I really feel unique and alone in the universe apart from my sociopathic brother. Mm -hmm. Nobody's perfect. That that wouldn't really, <laughs> I think that's really unnecessary. <laughs> that, that, that kind of detracts from the tone of the scene. So uh, yeah, Data felt like if there was another kind of artificial being with, you know, sentience and intelligence in this exocomp, then maybe he would have some kind of kinship with another being that was very much like him. And so the fact that it does not seem to be demonstrating self-awareness, you know, it's, it's, it's a disappointment to him. There's really no other way to put it. And then while he's talking to Dr. Crusher, the exocomp having finally completed its task comes back, but it comes back with a different tool that it went in with. And what data realizes is, wait a minute, this tool that it came out with is the tool that it used to deactivate the simulation of the catastrophic failure. Because it's not that it didn't detect it and try to save itself. It didn't fail the test. It saw right through it. It knew that it was a test and it ignored it because it was not actually a threat to it. So I guess data is proven out after all. Unfortunately, on the other side of a commercial we will discover that there is not really time for Data to explain that particular bit of information because Jean-Luc Picard is over on the Particle Fountain exploring the facility. He's, he's being given the grand tour and Dr. Farallon is like, hey, I don't think we're going to make the two-day deadline, but we're going to get darn close and I think you're going to have a pretty good recommendation that you can bring back to Starfleet. And of course... The one thing you never, ever do is say, this is going great. Because no sooner does she say that, but another catastrophic failure. Ha like, this is the most shoddily constructed facility I think I have ever seen in science fiction. And what about, I mean, take a hint, Dr. Farallon, for someone who's so intelligent, you have to realize that, uh, I guess, no matter what century you're in, 
that superstition does rear its ugly head some way, shape, or form. Because every time she said something, hey, this is going great, boom, it blew up in her face immediately. How is this thing even still on the table as, like, I don't care how great, you know, things are looking. If you have three potentially fatal catastrophic failures of your facility in two days, like... That's a red flag. I'm sorry. No, that's quite true. I don't care how efficient the technology is. Exactly. And especially as she was saying, she lives and breathes it, is pretty <coughs> devoted to it, and if you will, obsessed with it too. Kind of like how you and I are when it comes to broadcasting and podcasting. Yes, you have said that. But you'd figure that you'd kind of work out the bugs at this point as opposed to living life on the edge like that. But you didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's, it's kind of cliche, the scientist or or you know, inventor or whoever who's pushing the envelope in an effort to get their project, you know, they're, that they're they're throwing caution to the wind in an effort to finish the project before the deadline. So they'll be able to, you know, it, it again, it's a cliche in science fiction and, and in, in just storytelling, frankly. It is not for you to set the standards by which we should be judged. When she fell out of those trees, she may have fell on her head once or twice, too. So that might that be is possible. I had not considered that. A repercussion. Yeah. Reaper concussion. Oh, nice. Not really. I was not amused. <laughs> you give me far too much credit far too often. Oh, yes, you do. Uh, what are we even talking about? <laughs> I don't know anymore. I just don't know. <laughs> MacGuffins? Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no. So Picard is there. He's getting the grand tour. Jordy's there. And, uh, oh, this thing is going to be up and running in pretty close to the two-day deadline this thing is working you're gonna have a great recommendation to send back to starfleet as if on cue ba-boom <laughs> what are you doing and it's just one one more very quick observation here they seem to be getting worse <laughs> not only does it keep suffering failure after failure they're getting worse the thing is deteriorating rapidly you know who would not have stood for that kind of nonsense? Gul Dukat. He would have he, he would have sacrificed as many Bajorans as necessary to keep that station running. Agreed. However, there are circumstances of which you may be unaware. Well, in a way, yeah, Dr. Farallon has the same disregard for life as uh, Dukat did. That's true. That's actually a great point. Well done. So yeah, as I kind of alluded to, this is really bad. This is the one that, you know... People are going to die if they don't evacuate now. We have very little time. And so they call the Enterprise, request immediate emergency beam out. They have only seconds before they're no longer able to do that. Captain Picard goes to a console and he starts pressing some buttons. Captain's prerogative. Geordi's like, hey, let me press some buttons too. And then uh, they're all ready to get out. And then somebody in, they're like, hey, what about so-and-so in the back room? What? Where's he? So Geordi's like, yeah, I'll get him. I'll be real quick. He runs out to get the guy. There's an explosion off camera. The guy is dead. Geordi's okay. But unfortunately... Picard and LaForge have missed their window to get out. Everybody else got out. They are stuck there. And the radiation is rapidly building up in the room. And they have really just minutes before they are no longer viable living organisms. Fortunately, they are able to put up uh, like a force field that buys them 22 minutes. 
And so they have a little time, but they're, they're really just kind of hoping and praying. This is a Hail Mary, hoping that the Enterprise can find some way to get them out at this point. I understand the difficult position in which I'm placed. So on said Enterprise, they're bandying about ideas for how to effect said evacuation. And uh, somebody suggests taking a shuttle over. No, we'd never get to them in time. They consider blowing up a photon torpedo in the particle stream, which for some reason would shut things down and allow them to uh, be able to get out. I don't know. When in doubt, blow stuff up. It worked for the Mythbusters. Who is that? So, uh, uh, oh, poor Buster. Anyway, so... <laughs> so uh, they, they decide that it's going to take longer to configure the torpedo than they have. So that's not an option. But hey, says Dr. Farallon, if you're looking to blow some stuff up, have I got some exocomps for you? Now, I don't know how the exocomps got to the Enterprise, because as far as I know, they were working on getting the particle fountain up and running. I mean... I doubt they were part of the emergency evacuation, but uh... I have a theory. Oh, all right, go ahead. Since since they were becoming sentient beings and, and alive, mm-hmm. they were doing a job, and so they were union. They were on break, so they were they were, <laughs> hang, they were hanging out in ten forward. Uh, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what it is. They had replicated themselves some cigarettes, and they were just kind of <laughs> exactly. just kind of hanging out. <laughs> I could just imagine, like, sticking out of the front of the, the Exocop. <laughs> it's perfect. One of them has a lighter, the other one's lighting up, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Ah, uh, good theory, I like it. Thanks. <laughs> this is not the time. So, um, anyway, Farallon's like, yes, let's sacrifice these things because we can. And Data's like, wait, I am not cool with that because, actually, Dr. Crusher and I determined off screen that they are, in fact, alive and they didn't fail the test. No, I'm not going to explain that. And so you can't do this. And uh, Commander Riker's like, are you high? No, we're doing this. Data's like, well, wait, well, wait, if we try this, then... You know, since I've already determined that they are, in fact, self-aware, they are just going to do what they did last time and disable the command pathways so they will not let us make them into living bombs. And Dr. Farallon's like, no problem. I can totally lobotomize them, so that's not an issue. And Commander Riker is like, cool, let's do that. And so they do that. And right when they are about to beam them into the particle stream, the entire transporter system shuts down unexpectedly. And Riker's like, wait, what happened? Where's the, what? We you run a diagnostic. We need to figure out what the problem is. And Data's like, no, you don't need to do that. Uh, it's totally cool. This is on me. I, I did that. I am Spartacus in this particular <laughs> instance. So they have themselves a, a, a little powwow in the ready room. And Commander Riker tells him in no uncertain terms, you need to unlock the system. We need to get this thing done. You know, you've lodged your complaint. You, you've, you've lodged your protest. I have overruled it. So you are being insubordinate. And not only that, but you are risking the lives of two of your closest friends. And are these little gigaws really worth it? And Data is like, you know what? They are worth it. I, I feel like I need to do this. 
you know, it's, it's not right to sacrifice one being for another. I will not sacrifice these things just to save Captain Picard and Jordy. And he's like, you have no idea if they are actually alive. You keep saying that, but we don't know that. So isn't it better to just blow them up and err on the side of caution here? And Data's like, no, listen, I'd be happy to go over there and sacrifice myself in order to save them. I'm totally cool with that. And Riker's like, no, 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 no. Your positronic net would fry long before you were able to actually accomplish anything over there. That's a non-starter. And so Data is like, well, I am not letting these things get blowed up. And he's like, well, what do you propose we do then? Just let them die? And Data's like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. So he's like, hang on. You said that if we tried to blow them up, they would disable their command pathways and refuse. So this can all be sorted out very simply. Let's just reconnect their command pathways and see whether they do that or not. This could all be moot. Cool? Data's like, cool. So they do that, and the exocomps are not down with the blowing themselves up plan, but they're not shutting themselves down either. They actually kind of get together and formulate a new plan, a different plan, a better plan. And so they shoot some new coordinates over to the transporter console and they get themselves beamed into the station's core, which is where Picard and Geordi are hanging out and also where the, the power core for the entire facility is, which... Honestly, you'd think that should be in like a shielded room somewhere, but no, it's just just right out there in the open, full of God and everybody. So uh, that's convenient. Oh, yes, it is. So they beam in and it is determined that what they're going to do is they are going to let their powers combine. Earth, wind, water, fire, heart. Go planet! I'm sorry, I'm thinking of somebody else. What is going on here? They are going to uh, work together to siphon the energy out of the power core enough to disrupt. They're going to use harmonics or, I don't know, it's more technobabble nonsense. But basically, they're going to shoot glowy, beamy things at the power core until the Enterprise is able to get a signal lock on Picard and LaForge. And in fact, it works. They, uh, they are able to affect this plan, and so Jordy and Picard are beamed out, as are two of the exocomps. One of them had to stay behind to sacrifice itself so the other two could escape. And uh, so then, kind of the epilogue on the episode, we're back in the ready room, and Dr. Farallon has done a complete 180. Not dissimilar from the way Commander Maddox seemed to be at the end of Measure of Man. She's like, well, huh, joke's on me. I, I guess they are intelligent beings, and uh, I guess I can't use them as slave labor. However, I think I will ask for their help, and hopefully they will be willing to help me get the facility up and running eventually, and maybe down the line when we can get our catastrophic failures down to maybe one a week, maybe then Starfleet will be willing to recommend this as a, a valid technology for use in other places. So uh, 
I'm going to go off and dag nabbit. I'm going to go and be the best me I can be. And bye. So then she leaves and uh, Captain Picard is like, that was odd. That's not true. <laughs> he doesn't. None of that happens. That's correct. But uh, she, she does actually leave and uh, she leaves Captain Picard with Data. And Data feels like he needs to explain his actions to Captain Picard to explain why he was willing to sacrifice him for these beings, Uh, you know, especially given how much Picard has done for him. They call back measure of a man. He's like, listen, a long time ago, you gave me the opportunity to be recognized as a creature with rights and, uh, you know, the, the, the ability for self-determination. I had to do the same thing for these creatures. Hopefully you can understand that. And Picard is like, yes, of course you had to do that. It is the most human thing you've ever done, Data. I am completely, I rubber stamp your willingness to sacrifice me for these things. Uh, and so that about wraps up the episode. And I've talked for a long time about a lot of nonsense. And so now is the time when I stop talking following my inquiry, specifically, James, what did you think of this episode? Again, I'm a big fan of Star Trek The Next Generation as, well, all Star Trek mainly, but uh, I really liked it. It was a very good episode. It was engaging and interesting. Uh, I like the episodes that combine the science fiction with making you think and incorporate uh, different societal problems in real life and all that. So it, it really tied in very nicely. I, I thought it was an excellent idea, too, to uh, use this as a companion episode to Measure of a Man. And as you pointed out, and as they said, they even mentioned that episode, too, at the end, which was, was great. For characters, Dr. Farallon, I was really taken aback by not only she disregarded life of, or, or at least the idea that the exocomps were alive or, or some sort of life form, but she really didn't give a darn about her uh, team member that uh, just just died on the fountain there. Because specifically, too, when they got back to the Enterprise and, and Worf and, and number one are like, well, where are Geordi and the captain? And she's like, oh, Captain Picard and Geordi LaForge had to stay there and somebody else. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to imagine that the, that, 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 Tyrissian or whatever, uh, you know, however you refer to the uh, the, the people of Tyrus 4 or whatever the, the planet they were on. Incorrect. That they were colleagues and worked together for a long time and she didn't even bother to say the guy's name. <laughs> and uh, and he died, so. Yeah, R.I.P. Mr. Redshirt. Yeah, exactly. That's absolute. Very well said. Very well said, Gary. So I was taken aback at that. Although, James, given the frequency with which these accidents seem to happen, it's possible that this happens to her all the time. It's true. You, right? you, you can't get attached in this business, James. Good point. That, that's a very good point. Yes, that her, uh, her scientific theories and abilities seem to be sloppy at best. But That is an understatement. We're going to need another Timmy. There you go. Um, maybe that's why she came up with the exocomps in the first place, that she was going through... Live people. Right. Yeah, that's it. 
They just weren't hacking it. Anyhow. I mean, if nothing else, the paperwork has <laughs> got to be, you know, murdered. I understand what you've done here. No pun intended. Right. I wish I could believe that. So let's just forget the amount of blood that's on her hands and how mm-hmm. the exocomps came to be and so on and so forth. But yes, that was an excellent point, too. I thought Captain Picard took it very, very, a little bit too well. Yeah. When uh, Data just explained, like, yeah, you know, I appreciate it and grateful for eternity that you saved my life, but I was willing to let you die and, and my quote-unquote best friend, Jordy, die too while going... Data, I would expect nothing less. In fact, I would have been disappointed if you hadn't tried to get me killed. It's our mortality that defines us. It's part of the truth of our existence. <laughs> yes, and, and then too... I, I love Mr. Data, but I'm going to call him out on this when he was arguing with number one... In that key briefing, while all that was going on, the clock is ticking on Jordy and Captain, you know, 20 minutes and, and probably sooner mm-hmm, and sooner. Sure. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll go myself. And he knew darn well that number one wasn't going to let him go, Data. So. No. Uh, and then also, too, okay, fine. I, I see that Captain Picard was cool with it, but I'm just curious if in the back of Jordy's head in, <laughs> in, in the future that uh, maybe he wasn't that good a friend of Data's in the, from the beginning, but that's a question for another episode. Well, I, I'm looking forward to getting back to our uh, Star Trek Picard stuff. I mean, after what happens in Descent, which is the season six cliffhanger with Data kind of uh, betraying Jordy, I mean, that's Laura's fault. Uh, he can't put that entirely on him. But yeah, I think there have been a few times during the course of their friendship where Jordy might have some cause to wonder. <laughs> I, uh, generations, something happens too. Like Jordy gets kidnapped or, or something by the Duras sisters, I think, because Data is afraid that he's going to get hurt if he tries to save Jordy. Like, honestly, I love Data, but he's made some questionable decisions over the course of that friendship. Oh, yes, no doubt. Yeah, that's true, too. So uh, just be a little bit better with picking your friends, Mr. LaForge, because we Mm -hmm. do love LeVar Burton. But anyway, all in all, great episode. I thought it was a great idea how it tied in so well with Measure of a Man and exploring how Star Trek Picard came to be. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason I, I really wanted to do this episode is, as I said, it is one of my kind of low-key favorite episodes of this series, but also I think it goes a long way towards demonstrating Starfleet's kind of, I don't know, bipolar maybe is the word, kind of uh, extreme views one way or the other on artificial life. So it seems like, you know, they're institutionally speaking it seems like they are completely on board uh their default is the idea that no if you make a thing it cannot be alive it cannot be treated as such this is just a thing it has no rights it has no privileges we should be able to use it and abuse it as we see fit however Once the case is made and that switch gets flipped from not sentient to sentient, they are all in on the rights and protections and freedoms for those beings. And, you know, again, I think that is evidenced very clearly in Star Trek Picard, because I think we are given to understand that the what did you call them? The F8s, the synths that are created based on the B4 design 
that wind up, you know, basically turning traitor on Mars, the ones that were co-opted and caused the massacre. Like, it's pretty obvious that they were not viewed as, you know, sentient life forms with their own rights and privileges. So Starfleet was perfectly happy to enslave them for their own devices, you know, because they're not real people. You know, we don't have to worry about their their rights and, and their freedoms that, that we need to afford them. However, at the end, I mean, yes, the kind of the driving plot of the series was that the Jat Vash were hunting down these artificial creatures, but Starfleet didn't know anything about them. So, of course, I'm talking about the, the Sung type androids that, uh, you know, Dodge and Soji and, and, and all the beings on Capalius. But once Starfleet learned of their existence, a whole colony of these sentient androids, they sent an entire fleet of their top of the line ships to protect them. Like, I think maybe they, they need to kind of equalize that out a little bit and uh, find maybe a, a, a better balance there of, you know, what they should be willing to respect and how they should approach these things. But I think this is a very good kind of uh, microcosm of that whole idea because Dr. Farallon spends the whole episode arguing that these exocomps are not alive. And then when it is proven that they are in fact alive, she is entirely on board with treating them as, you know, equals and, and, and beings with rights and freedoms. So like, I don't know, maybe that's just how they raise you up in Starfleet. Almost certainly. All great points, Gary. And also, too, this just reminds me of a little bit more of a tangent. Um, being stuck in the house under quarantine for so uh, many weeks. Been watching a lot of Star Trek, including the movies. So Star Trek, the motion picture, mm-hmm. that you just triggered something in my head with the whole V'ger thing. And yeah, how sure. it, it perceived the Enterprise as a, a fellow machine, but alive and that the Kirk units and the organics were kind of infesting the enterprise itself. So right. Yeah. That, that kind of triggered that too, but you're absolutely right. It, wherever the wind blows, they're like, it's, it's just a machine. No, it's alive. Okay. You know, either way. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they are all in either way. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that kind of came to me as we were talking about this, the other tie-in i think to star trek picard and it's not a direct tie-in it's another one of these thematic things so the behavior exhibited by the exocomps reminded me a lot of james are you familiar with the three laws of robotics as uh, written by isaac asimov i've heard of them i can't say off the top of my head no Okay, so the three laws of robotics that Isaac Asimov, very early on in his writings about robots, kind of created as the defining characteristic of what a positronic robot would be, would have to be, the three principles that were core to its being that it absolutely could not deviate from. The first law of robotics is that a robot cannot harm a human being. Cannot. Just unable to do it. The second law of robotics is that a robot has to follow the commands and instructions of a human being, except when that would violate the first law. 
And the third law of robotics is that a robot must protect itself, like what must preserve its own life, except where that would violate the first or the second laws. And I, I don't remember which episode it was, but I think it was implied at some point in Star Trek that data was built by Dr. Sung with uh, a similar code. And I mean, the whole idea of a positronic Android is a nod to Asimov, but the actions of the exocomps really reminded me of that when, you know, they tried to preserve themselves, but they also tried to follow the instructions of their master, as it were. And also, you know, it, it kind of put me in the mind of that scene in Star Trek Picard where Dr. Gerardi comes to the chateau and she sees the Asimov book on his table. Excellent point. And also, too, have you ever seen the movie Forbidden Planet? No, I don't believe so. Okay, that's one of the all-time best sci-fi movies. If you ever get a chance to see it, please do so. And uh, none other than uh, Lieutenant Drebin himself plays the captain in it. Who is that? Um, Leslie Nielsen. It's an excellent movie. Huh. It's, it's the first, I think it came out in the mid-50s, but it was considered, it is considered the first sci-fi movie, high-budget sci-fi movie. It's awesome. It's such a great, great film. Anyway, Robbie the Robot, I'm sure everybody's familiar with him. Mm-hmm. He, that's his debut, was in that movie, uh, Forbidden Planet. Okay. And that's exactly a point, just what you said, that the creator of that robot displayed those three characteristics in Robbie the Robot just mm-hmm. right right out there in one scene of that movie, which great, great movie. Okay. Now, as we're talking about this, it occurs to me that somebody might nitpick my statements here and say, hang on a second. I think it would be only fair. You said that the third law was self-preservation and the second one was following commands. Now, the exocomps did not follow commands in order to preserve themselves. So it's not really one-to-one there. Now, what I will say is there was an Asimov story that was written, and I'm not going to go into the specifics, but the gist of it was a robot was stuck in a loop because it had been ordered to get some vital supplies from some place that would be potentially fatal to it. And it was stuck in this kind of recursive loop because it knew that if it didn't get the supplies, the people that were relying on it to collect those supplies would be harmed. However, if it allowed itself to come to harm, that would also be harmful to those people. So it it was kind of locked into indecision. So I'm willing to say, hey, maybe these exocomps said, listen, In addition to the fact that we are sentient beings who should be able to determine our own fate, if something happens to us, then that will also be incredibly harmful, potentially, to these people because they rely on us. So I'm I'm willing to let that slide in on a technicality. You almost convinced me. Also, too, another excellent point, too, Gary, is that the exocomps were designed to fix things. Mm -hmm. So I think that would override everything. Whereas, yeah. okay, they could self-preservation, but they're designed to come up with tools and solutions. Right. So right. therefore, if the solution is to sacrifice yourself, then you got to do it. Yeah, man. Great point. And uh, so that is going to kind of, uh, I think, put a bow on the Star Trek The Next Generation part of the artificial rights arc. But... 
we are not done with the arc itself because we are going to venture into a brave new series, a different ship, a different series, a different quadrant. But the same themes are going to be addressed on the next episode, the on the next thrilling episode of Vintage Picard. That's my that's my bombastic radio voice. I'll take your word for it. You're welcome, by the way. So, um, yeah, I mean, that will be next time. However, in the intervening period, we want to know what you think about what we've covered here, about our our thoughts and views on Starfleet vis-a-vis the rights of artificial beings, on the exocomps themselves, the quality of life episode, on any connections to Star Trek Picard that we might have missed. We want to hear from you. We want you to email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. We are also Vintage Picard on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We can be got. Anyone receiving this transmission, please respond. We also want you to subscribe to this podcast. Every other week we drop one of these things and we don't have a set release date because that is very much based on factors that vary from week to week. So, you know, you want to make sure you get it when it drops. I appreciate your telling me. I'm quite sure that the two of you will find some way to deal with the situation. So when it drops, you will know if you subscribe because it'll be right there in your pod feed. We are on Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, the Android platform, uh, which I get Google Podcasts, I think. Yes, sir. Spreaker, Spotify, all kinds of places. And finally, I would ask that you please consider recommending this podcast to a friend because... You know, if you like something, if you enjoy something, then it always makes it better if you can share it with someone. So if you like Star Trek and if you have a friend who is a big Star Trek fan who would appreciate this kind of thing, then please recommend us to them so we can all enjoy each other's company. I'd like that very much. And I'm sure we will enjoy each other's company when we circle back to do this again two weeks hence. And in that intervening time, I would urge you, dear listener, please, my friend, choose to live. Bye! And one final thing, too. I don't know why I'm following these people's careers, but the actor who played... (laughs) I noticed was in another series. It's really smutty and embarrassingly amoral. But just between me and you, it's, uh, let's just say, a lot of casual sex and a lot of drugs and and hijinks (laughs) well that's despicable when did you say it was on (laughs) anyway that is deplorable smut and it was on what channel again (laughs) i tried sticking with it i just i couldn't do it